You're listening to a sermon from the Spring Midtown Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about the Spring and its ministry, please visit thespringmidtown.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Order the pastor to be silenced on Sundays. Now, what is there left? The essential thing remains. Their lives. The daily life with which the pastor preaches. Would you then get the impression by watching them that it was Christianity that they were preaching? Soren Kierkegaard, Danish philosopher, liked to put people like me on blast, which I appreciate. <laughs> He's reminding us that there is one kind of spiritual conversation that you participate in every week. I do too. It's called sermon. Spiritual conversation is a, a good thing, and it's handy, actually, that somebody sometimes will talk about what the Bible is, and what the Bible means, and what it is that we believe as Christians. But the truth is, most spiritual conversations are not sermons, not opportunities to monologue with people on a regular basis, but actually there's a give and a take, and actually there's not usually as much time, and actually the Bible isn't always something that gets trotted out in a conversation. You're sort of listening to people, and talking to people, and hearing what they think, and along the way talking about work, and life, and babies, and all sorts of stuff. You rarely get this level of intentionality with sermons, or with uh, spiritual conversations, I would say. And you and I, throughout the week, most of the time, are exactly the same. We're just trying to talk to people about what it is that we believe, and we're very interested to hear what it is that they believe in the hopes that we might bear witness to Jesus. So, this series that we're doing is called Spiritual Conversations, and the reason for that is that we want to have spiritual conversations, and we want to have fruitful spiritual conversations. We want to help you do that as well. And it's not just something that's happening on Sunday mornings. We're talking about this throughout the week in community groups and some of the uh, curriculum we've developed. And so I just want to remind you and those of you online that the church is not a spectator sport, that actually the church is a community of people on a mission to bring people to Jesus Christ. We'll stop. And so there are lots of different ways to do that, and we really want to help you do that, even if you're online. Now there are ways to get connected and involved. And so I just want to encourage all of you that this is not the only way to learn about how to have effective spiritual conversations. This is part of what we're doing. But today what we're going to be talking about is living a life that demands an explanation. Living a life that demands an explanation. Would you turn with me to 1 Peter, if you've got a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we'll buy one. 1 Peter, we're going to chapter 3. I'm serious, by the way, I'll buy this one. 1 Peter chapter 3, we start at verse 8. Toward the back of the Bible. 1 Peter 3, 8. Finally, all of you, have unity of spirit, sympathy, love for one another, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil, or abuse for abuse. On the contrary, repay with a blessing. It is for this that you were called, that you might inherit a blessing. For those who desire life and desire to see good days, let them keep their tongues from evil and their lips from speaking deceit. Let them turn away from evil and do good. Let them seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who will harm you if you are eager to do what is good? But even if you do suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. 
Do not fear what they fear, and do not be intimidated. But in your heart, sanctify Christ as Lord. Always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and reverence. Keep your conscience clear so that when you are maligned, those who abuse you for your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if suffering should be God's will, than to suffer for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for sin once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Ninety-three percent, they say, ninety-three percent of all communication is nonverbal. Seven percent of what you say is the words that you say. And the vast majority of what you say, you didn't actually say. Think about that. <laughs> I'm so glad you're here today. I'm so glad that you're here today. I'm so glad that you're here today. Three identical sentences, very different meaning, very different kinds of communication. Sincerity and insincerity, hostility, warmth, and love. All because of the way that you move your hands, your face, your body. So we call this body language, right? What your feet are pointed toward. Your posture in the midst of it all. What it is that you're doing, saying your tone, your attitude, it all just comes across non-verbally and has a massive impact on the words that you say. Body language. Now, Peter has a very strong opinion about body language. The New Testament in general would call you and I the body of Christ. The eyes and ears, the hands, the feet of the gospel. That in many ways, what the Bible would say is that you are most likely to be the closest that someone will come to meeting Jesus in the flesh. That you are the closest someone's going to come to actually experiencing what it's like to be loved by Jesus. You are the closest thing someone's going to experience to being forgiven like being forgiven by Jesus. You are the body of Christ. Body language is very important in a spiritual conversation because the truth is most spiritual conversations are non-verbal. Are we living our lives in such a way that if someone was watching us, they wouldn't just know that we were good people. They wouldn't just know that we were religious. They would actually know that we followed Jesus. How do you do that with your hips? How do you do that with your tone of voice? How do you do that with the way that you live your life? Now, we know this is really important because we know that in our time, uh, the body of Christ, let's say, uh, has a problem with its language. I think it's safe to say that the nonverbal statements of the body of Christ are problematic. For instance, you saw a video, if you were looking around the internet this week, of people who, generally speaking, would claim to be for the police, beating a police officer with an American flag. The irony of all of those images, along with the brutality and the hideousness of what happened, really defies words. But you and I know that many of these people are associated with the name of who? Jesus Christ. That is disconcerting. It is disconcerting when people who would call themselves Christians would wave Confederate flags. It is disconcerting when Christians would associate themselves with the sorts of people who are pro-Nazi. Actual Nazi. Pro-Nazi. 
It is disconcerting with Christians, in the name of justice, gather not just for protests, but for riots. It is disconcerting when Christians loot businesses. It is disconcerting when people in the name of Jesus can be arrogant, cruel, vicious. Ah! Body language. And we would say all along the way that all we're trying to do is be Christians. We just want freedom to be Christians. We've got to be very, very careful with what it is we're saying and how it is that we're saying. Body language. Very important. You and I, being the closest someone's going to come to getting to know Jesus. Well, it actually might be really, really important the way that we live our lives. Because we already know there are people we're associated with who are going to cause problems for our spiritual conversations. That we will be judged, unfortunately, by the whole body of Christ, by the whole witness of the body. And so we're going to have to be extra good at following Jesus. Peter is fascinated by this idea. Peter, who writes this letter that we just read, and it's a letter to the church. All along the way in this letter, he's saying things like, you're going to have to be careful with the way you live your life. Not just the message that we preach and we proclaim, but back in chapter 1, he says things like, look, you've been changed, you've been transformed, don't be conformed to the kind of person you used to be. You're a whole different person. You are aliens, you are exiles, you don't belong in this country. This is not your king. You have a completely different king. You belong to a completely different kingdom. Live that way. By the way, your whole life is built on a completely different foundation. Christ himself being the chief cornerstone of that foundation. And just earlier in this chapter, he has said, Wives, when you love your husbands, if they are not Christians, love them so well. Be so devoted to them and so devoted to Jesus that they will come to know Jesus and you won't even have to talk about it. Be that good at loving Jesus. Be that good at loving your husbands non-verbally that they'll go, Oh my God, what is, who is it that you follow? And now he says, all of you, all of you, be, well, humble, tenderhearted, be sympathetic, be compassionate, and care deeply about unity. Be the sort of people who bring people together. Again, think about the country we live in. Think about the situation in which we find ourselves, left and right. And imagine, just imagine, if the people who follow Jesus followed those five things on a regular basis, just those five things, if we were just about unity of spirit, one another, tenderheartedness, and humility, people would say, your are unlike I am me. Where's your body? That's a question. Where's your body? Where's your body in a dating relationship? Where are your hands in a dating relationship? Where are their hands? But where's your body in a marriage relationship? Where are your eyes? Where are your ears when people are gossiping and saying all kinds of crap about your eyes? Where are your fingers when it comes to the internet? What are you looking at? What are you watching? What are you saying? What are you liking? What are you reposting? Where is your body when it comes to the homeless? Far away, making eye contact. Where is your body when it comes to people you disagree with? Giving hugs or standing at a distance disapprovingly? Where is your body when it comes to following Jesus? What is our body language like? Can people see the sorts of things that Psalm 34 says, that Peter quotes, those who desire to see life, those who desire life, who desire to see good days? Well, let them turn from evil and pursue good. Let them be the sort of people who say, well, 
I have a different relationship with blessing and cursing. Let them be the sort of people who have a different relationship with suffering. Let them be the sort of people who have a different relationship to fear. Body language. What are we communicating non-verbally? A different relationship between blessing and cursing. It is amazing what, what Peter tells us to do. When people abuse you, he says, do not abuse back. Where do you think he got that? Jesus. Who is he plagiarizing? The guy he followed for many years. When someone curses you, bless them. We're not talking about bad words, although bad words are often involved in person. Or somebody says, you. And you respond with, have a nice day. And you genuinely mean it. It's not a sarcastic, like you're sincere in it. People will be confused. If you get cut off in traffic, and your move every time is to pray for the person that they would get home safely, if that happens every time, someone eventually will be in the car with you and go, what? What is, what is with you, man? That is not a normal thing. I had a friend who for years was working in an office, and people were just vicious. There was one person in particular who was just always looking for an opportunity to make fun of my body. Always. Always looking for an opportunity to put him down. Always. Then one day, my friend gets promoted after years of being mistreated by his coworker, and now he's his boss. And my friend invites the guy into his office, and he says, hey, I know we haven't had a great relationship, and I just want to say, I think we should try to start off on a brand new foot. He had all kinds of power. He could have fired the guy. And the guy looks at him and says, I don't understand. And my friend says, I just think we, we, could, we can be better with our relationship. And my, the guy says, no, I've been terrible. And my friend says, yes, you have. And he really wanted to hear more about, the, like he was just so confused at this very strange way of dealing with people. Uh, have a very different relationship with suffering, Peter says. Uh, not just with blessing and cursing, but with suffering. When you suffer, suffer differently than other people suffer. So now probably, if you're the kind of person who's seeking good, probably, if you're doing these sorts of things, probably if you're following Jesus, if you're this kind of person, most of the time, people are going to be nice to you. Most of the time, life's going to be good. Verse 13. Who's going to hurt you if you're a good person? But obviously sometimes people are going to hurt you because you're good. Right? He follows it up with a very realistic statement in verse 14. Obviously it's probably going to be bad, but don't live in fear that sometimes bad things happen to good people. But know that when you suffer, the way that you suffer actually shows something about who you are as a person. That you're not just a nice person when things are nice for you, but actually you have integrity. That actually there's, there's this hope that's in you that's difficult to quantify and different, difficult to explain. And the way that you love other people, even in the midst of your own suffering, will be strange to them. They'll want to hear more about, about this person you can follow. There was another friend of mine who, uh, for years, loved the neighbor across the street. And the neighbor across the street had uh, a husband who divorced her. And he divorced her because she got cancer. Because she got cancer. She had stage 4 cancer. She was going to die. He never really took those vows very seriously. He wasn't a Christian. Why would he? It doesn't really matter to him. So he just walks away. Monstrous behavior, or just kind of what you expect, depending on how you want to look at it. Guy walks away. Many of the family members, yeah, they're uncomfortable with sickness and disease, so they're not really around it either. And the truth is, she was kind of an unpleasant person in the midst of the cancer and the chemo and all those things. So she actually alienated some friends along the way. So my friend, who has no relationship whatsoever, no responsibility for this person, just feels sad that she's alone. Starts showing up, starts bringing groceries. Hanging out with her when she's sick and throwing up. Sitting with her when she's drunk and angry and, and railing about how miserable her life is. By the way, my friend also had cancer. 
also had cancer, the kind of thing where you're like, I just need to take care of me right now. Somebody else should figure this out. No. My friend, in the midst of her cancer, because she believed in Jesus, was just a regular and consistent part of this person's life until she died. And even after she died, she did what she could to honor this woman's life. And people were so confused. So confused that she had endless opportunities to talk to them about why she was the kind of person she was. The reason for the hope that was in her. A different relationship with fear. That's the third thing that Peter kind of brings up in this. Don't fear what they fear. He's quoting Isaiah. And in Isaiah, they have some really good reasons to be afraid. And it's pretty clear that Peter has some pretty good reasons to be afraid. All throughout this letter, there's sort of this specter that the Roman government's going to be really vicious to them. Don't be afraid like other people are afraid, he says. Remember, we have this hope. We have this hope. So we live in a time right, where there's a global pandemic, and a lot of people are afraid for an awful lot of reasons. Uh, not just sickness reasons, but, you know, government reasons and all sorts of things like that. If we were the kind of people who aren't afraid of the people we disagree with, aren't afraid of the other political party, that, again, would make us strange. If we were the kind of people that aren't afraid of the disease, I want to be really clear on what I'm saying. There's going to be nuance here. But we aren't afraid of disease. That's not why we wear masks. We're not scared of it. I'm not scared of you, and I'm not scared of COVID. The reason we wear masks isn't that we're anxious, and we're paralyzed, and we're terrified that we could die. The reason we wear masks is we go, well, I don't want to get sick. Doesn't seem like a good idea. I care about my neighbors, I don't want them to get sick. The reason we were asking this church, honestly, the reason we do, is because we want people who are anxious to feel welcome in this church. That's why. We want people who are who are afraid that they might die to feel welcome so that they might hear about the hope we have in Jesus Christ. That we as people would say, you know what, this is a mild inconvenience, and I care very deeply about you, and you're more important to me than I am to me. Remember, Peter says, that guy, Jesus, who did that for you, who died for you, so that you might come to know how much God loves you? Think about the humility of Jesus when it comes to bearing witness. He says, the thing about this, if you really live this kind of life, this sort of extremely countercultural, this strange life, it's going to demand an explanation. People are going to want to know why. Why it is that you're not like those other people they know who are connected to Jesus. Why it is that you're... You're not like the people they know at work because you seem to have hope. Why it is that you always seem to respond really well? There's no avoiding it. Some of us, I think, hope that well, what we can do is we can just live good lives, be nice people, we can love folks, and, you know, we just, they'll sort of figure it out. They won't figure it out. You're going to have to talk. If you're really, really good at this, people will ask you, point blank. They will come at you, and you will have to go, I, you know, the thing is, I believe in Jesus. You will have to give an account for the hope that is in you. Peter's warning us, if you are this kind of person, they're going to want to know more about why. And the answer is going to be Jesus. Verse 15 is an important one. At all times, always be ready because you never know when it's going to happen. And Peter speaks from experience. Those of you who have heard um, some of the stories in the Gospels, there's this story about Peter. right? The guy writing the letter, that's Peter. Peter has this moment where he's talking to Jesus and Jesus is being weird and kind of ominous because Jesus is always saying weird stuff in the Gospels. And Peter is listening and he goes, look, Lord, whatever. Like, I'm with you to the end. Like, I'm not going to, like, well, I'm the last man standing. Everybody else abandons you. I'm in. And Jesus says, bro, that, no, that's not going to happen. And Peter's like, listen, I'm betting on me. You're wrong. So the thing is, I'm with you to the end. Nobody knows that better than me. And Jesus says, you're not even going to make it 24 hours. Before the sun rises... <laughs> You're going to deny me three times. You're going to hear a rooster calling your name. And Peter takes the bet. And sure enough, a little bit later, Jesus is arrested. 
and it's pretty bad. And Peter follows. We don't know why Peter follows. It's one of the things I'm always curious about when I read that story. Peter follows. Is he hoping to break Jesus out of prison? Is he hoping to, to start some kind of fight? Is he hoping to defend him in court? Is he hoping to die with him? We don't know. But Peter follows at a distance, and there's this sham trial. There's police brutality. There's racial violence. There's systemic injustice. There are false witnesses. It is bad news. And all sorts of people are lying about Jesus, and Peter is right there. And he chokes. Chokes the moment away. He doesn't speak up. He doesn't say, actually, I know Jesus. Actually, I was there for all that. No, that didn't happen. Yes, I know who Jesus is. Yes, he did say those things. You're wrong. I know things about Jesus that you do not know. And then people ask him, point blank, so are you one of those people who follow Jesus? And he says, no. Just instinctively, immediately, he doesn't want to be associated with Jesus. He doesn't want to have to explain anything about the hope that he's got. And then somebody else goes, no, like, you're one of, I've seen you with him. You're one of those people who follows Jesus. You're one of the, like, what are they, Christians, disciples, what are they called? No, that's not me, man. you got somebody else. Third person asks, no, you talk like him. You, I... I've heard people like you, you're, you're one of them. And he starts cursing, and he says, I've never met the man in my life. And a little bit later on, he hears a rooster calling the coward. And he's telling you, look, you don't want that experience. You don't want to be in a situation where you have the opportunity to talk about Jesus, and you choke the moment away. But the beautiful thing is, for all of us who are listening to this, for those of us who've had that moment and have choked, who know of specific moments that we could have talked about Jesus, we could have lived differently, we could have borne with us. Peter, the ultimate traitor, is the guy writing the letter. If there's hope for Peter, there's hope for you and me. If this guy can talk to us about evangelism and bear witness to Jesus, we're going to do great. Because I promise you this, you will never fail Jesus more than Peter failed Jesus. It's as bad as it gets. Peter is as bad as it gets, and we are always going to be him in that way. So the real question is, if you fail, what does it look like to be ready the next time to bear witness to the hope that we have in us? To bear witness. Always be ready to bear witness to the hope that is in you. That's what he says. Always. Always be ready. Because when you live differently, people are going to ask the question. There's this uh, book called The Insanity of God. It was written by a guy named Nick Ripken. And uh, it's, honestly, it's a book full of really amazing stories of Eastern European Christians who made it through communism. Serious brutality, crazy persecution. The stories of those people are amazing. Not even really the writing of Nick Rick. It's just every time he tells you a story, you're like, this is amazing. I would like to meet people like this. One of the people whose story I have to so compress as to ruin it by the book and read about Dimitri is named Dimitri. So Dimitri is a guy who grows up in communism, and by the time he's an adult with kids, there really aren't churches anymore. It's just not an option. So the closest church to him is literally a three-day walk. So actual social distancing, very much an internet kind of experience. It's very hard to actually get to somewhere where you can worship Jesus. And they kind of live this life where they can't bring their kids to church, and they go to church maybe twice a year because they have to walk the whole way. And there's this day, and he's looking at his wife, and he goes, look, you might think I'm crazy. I just feel like we should start having like a Bible time like with our kids so that they know some of these stories and some of these songs that we grew up with. And the wife, sure enough, has been praying for this. So actually everybody's on board with it. And the kids are really little, and so they start just telling stories they remember. They don't really have access to Bibles because those are illegal now. So the stories they remember, the bits and pieces they memorize, the songs they know, the liturgy, all that sort of stuff, they're teaching their kids. And little by little, the kids start to remember, and then there are weeks where the kids are in charge, and they're teaching the parents, and they're going back and forth. And 
they go, well, we should we should sing songs. And so they start singing songs. We should we should pray together. They start praying together. And you know, it's Russia, they've been doing this for years, and the towns are small, and the windows are open, and people see you when they're walking by on the street, just like now, and just like in our neighborhoods. So eventually neighbors start to notice, and a couple of them come over and go, Can we can we come? Can we bring our kids? And they go, sure. And so now there's five or six people, and then after a little bit, there's 10 or 15 people, and they're all just in the house, and somebody reads from the Bible, and there's some singing of songs, and some people pray for each other. Notice the similarity to what we're doing right now. And it isn't long before there's 30 people in the house, and the authorities start to take notice. When the authorities start to take notice, they threaten him, and they threaten his wife, and they threaten his kids. The kids start getting bullied at school. The wife loses her job. Dimitri says, you know, little things like that. Little things. Those are big things to us. Those are little things to them. And they keep going. And sure enough, it's like 50 or 60 people in the house. And at some point, the authorities literally show up mid-service. And they grab him and they drag him out. And they bring him to prison. He's in prison 17 years. This is a really brutal story in many ways. But he doesn't fear what they fear. And he doesn't suffer like they suffer. And he returns, actually, all these curses with blessings. And so every day in a cell, he has two things. Two things he does every chance he gets. One's... He wakes up every morning. When the sun comes up, he faces east. He stands up at attention at his bed, and he sings a song to Jesus every day. 17 years in prison. He's the only Christian in the prison. It's him and 1,500 hardened criminals. That's it. Every day, he sings a song to Jesus. And the second thing, any chance he gets, any chance he gets, he grabs a scrap of paper, if he can find it, like a receipt or some trash blown across the yard. Brings it back to his cell, uses a little bit of charcoal, and he writes every bit of the Bible he can remember on the piece of paper. Every song he can remember, anything about Jesus, just scribbling until it's full. He has no more space to write, and he sticks it on a wet spot on the wall of his cell where the water comes down. Because it's Russian, it's cold, and there's water in the cell. And he leaves it there sort of as an offering to Jesus, and also as a reminder of what it is that he believes. And every time the guards see it, they beat him. Every time there's a piece of paper on the wall, they drag him out and they beat him. He does this for 17 years, these two things. And by the way, the fellow prisoners, not big fans of hearing that song every morning. And because they're not Christians, they're making noise, they're yelling curses at them, they're throwing stuff through the cell, stuff like that. Then, deep into the prison sense, there's this weird day where he's praying, and he's wondering if it's all just a waste, and all of a sudden, he feels like God is telling him that his wife and his children are alive, they still believe in Jesus, and things are worth doing. And he feels this weird kind of strength, because he just knows that God is with him. And it turns out, a little bit later that day, he finds a whole piece of paper, which to him is like the best thing in the world in prison. So the whole piece of paper, just covering the piece of paper, like front and back, everything you remember, all the stuff he's grateful for. He's grateful for to Jesus. And he sticks it on the cell as well, and he goes, that was probably done. And sure enough, the prison guards, they rip him out, and they're about to beat him. They're dragging him through the yard, and all of a sudden, he hears 1,500 prisoners singing the song. 1,500 prisoners singing the song he sings every morning. And the jailers, they look at him and they back up and they're scared out of their minds. And they say, who are you? He responds, I am the son of the living God. Jesus is his name. Amazing. Now, that sounds like a story of something that we could never do in our lives. Like persecution and craziness and communism. Remember, normal guy, no theological training. A bunch of people showing up at his house to pray and talk about stories they remember. That's it. That's the crime. Just being a Christian on a regular basis. And there was enough evidence to convict him of being a Christian. I think it's worth asking, is there enough evidence in our lives to convict us of being Christians? 
And this guy, who slowly and steadily lives his life differently every day, it changes him to the point that even his prison, his prison mates and his guards are asking questions like, I don't understand. Tell me a reason for the hope that is in you. But I'm aware because this is such an extreme story and such an amazing thing that some of us go, that's just not realistic. Like, I can't live a life like that. That guy's a saint. So let me just say this. A saint is someone. This is a great definition for a saint. A saint is someone whose life makes it easier to believe in God. That's what a saint is. None of the other stuff. A saint is someone whose life makes it easy to believe in God. When you look at them and you go, there's probably a God. Like, that's someone who's a saint. You and I are called to be saints. Called saints, actually, by the Bible already. People who can live this life differently. But because, again, I know this is a strange story, I thought I would bring up something that is maybe a little bit more relevant to us. So this is a clip from British ESPN. And a guy being interviewed is not a big deal. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about that. Um, the challenges of the pandemic on mental health, that's something that we're all very conscious about. I know that you speak about matters of, of faith and mental wellness. Um, look, I suppose in your role as managing director of Christians in sport, it's a time where a lot of people are looking for hope. Now, you talk about faith, you talk about the Christian faith. Within a footballing context, you know all about that world as well. So what hope do you think that faith brings to people? Well, I think at the heart of the mental health issue that we're dealing with, particularly in professional football at the moment, and I think dealing with it well, all the established research, without, without exception, all the established research about identity and professional sport shows two things. Number one, elite athletes must know that somebody loves them whether they win or lose. Your life is consumed with winning or losing, of course, and performing. If somebody loves you independent of your performance, you will have a better balance on life. Secondly, if you can achieve that better balance from unconditional acceptance, what you will find is that you've got a better vision for life beyond your sport, and it will just make you a richer human being. Now, if that's critical in professional sport for, for good health, the Christian sport, of course, fundamentally for 2,000 years, the Christian faith has held to those two things, that you're loved unconditionally by a creator who comes into this world for you. And two, that if you can grasp that we're loved in that way, you can look at the world of sport around you, and I've been in it for 35 years in this context, and say, Come on, let's use sport to make our communities and our country and our world a better place. So those two things working together at the heart of Christianity are definitely at the heart of good mental health in professional sport. Graham, it's a really encouraging message and uh, great, uh, a great message to have this Friday afternoon. Listen, we're really thankful for your time. Thank you so much. The, the thing you don't know is that the interview has been very normal up until this point, and this guy is not a big deal. So the interviewer is a big deal. This is ESPN. This guy is like a, a significant soccer coach. So like, think single A or double A baseball. Not majorly, just like a guy who's better than normal. If you were a really good high school coach, like it'd be kind of like that. You're just really good at the thing you care about, and suddenly you find yourself on ESPN and they're asking you questions. So what is the effect of the pandemic on this version of soccer and like, and your thoughts on the nature of the sport. And the very end of the interview, a question he's not at all prepared to answer, nothing to expect at all. Someone just says, and you know, we've got mental health issues, and I know that you're a Christian, and you talk about stuff like that with your footballers, so like, 
Can you give a reason for the hope that is in you? And it just sort of freezes. Like, there's just this, like, very real, oh, I didn't know I was going to be talking about this today. Oh, Lord God, help me. I'm on TV. Right? That moment. And all of a sudden, he has to talk about Jesus. And at first, he's just sort of, you know, we need to be loved, and we need to be loved unconditionally, and that's a big deal for athletes, and that's who I work with. And then by the end, he's had like a minute. He has one minute to answer the question, why do you believe in Jesus? What, what, what about Jesus brings hope in the season? And by the end of the minute, he's like, I'm making sense. Like, this is a pretty, by the end of it, he's starting to feel confident. Like, this, this works for me. Imagine, right now, that you had exactly one minute, and someone said to you, so, like, why believe in Jesus? You would have to answer that question. And it would be good, I think, to maybe sit down and go, why do I believe in Jesus? It's not big, complex arguments about the nature of evolution or the science or the, all of the issues plaguing America today. Just why do you believe in Jesus? What has Jesus done in your life? Why is Jesus important to the work that you do every day? Your work, your job. Why is Jesus important to your family? Could you answer the question in one minute? Because I promise you, if you live differently, it will demand an explanation. People will ask the question. This guy was surprised, and I actually think does a really good job. That was the gospel. People need to be loved unconditionally. When I deal with athletes, I understand they need to be loved whether they win or lose. And the truth is that gives them an identity that's beyond this, beyond soccer, an identity that changes the way that they look at the world, a broader way of looking at their life and who they are as a person. I think that actually makes a huge impact on our world. That's him as a soccer coach. How about you in your life? Because you know people who will ask you. And it probably won't be on TV, but it will be just as important a moment. And when that happens, you want to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in you. Would you pray? Lord Jesus.